You've probably heard the saying, when one door closes, another one opens. But for a significant percentage of the population, there are people who don't want the doors open at all, or they want to make the opening as narrow as possible. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 92 of the Resilient Journey podcast presented by the Resilience Think Tank. I'm your host, Mark Hoffman, and this week I'm joined by my good friend, Vince Davis, as we take a look at what happens when an organization tries to execute a DEI initiative, but doesn't have the internal culture in place to get it done. It's a case study involving the IAEM in the U.S. Vince tells us where the wheels fell off and why he's tired. From my perspective, this isn't an indictment of IAEM as much as it is a lesson for those of us who want to be an ally for diversity and a warning for those who are only going through the motions. Vince, welcome back to the podcast. I am thrilled to have you here as always. Uh, By now, I'm sure everybody knows who you are, but just give a brief introduction, please. Sure. I'm Vince Davis. I am uh, the uh, founder and uh, president of Preparedness Matters um, LLC, a disaster consulting firm that does a lot of work in emergencies and disasters. Uh, 30-plus year emergency manager with an extensive career in corporate public sector and private sector emergency management, uh, including FEMA, Red Cross, Amazon, Sony, Walgreens, um, and done extensive work in uh, diversity issues, both in the African-American and in the Native communities. Yeah, and we appreciate your work in all of that. And like, no question, would you say 30 plus years in emergency management, you know your way around emergency management. And that's part of what makes you um, qualified to speak about the topic today. So one of the core tenets of my organization the Resilience Think Tank is to promote diversity in our industry. And by our industry, I mean resilience, business continuity, crisis management, emergence, you know, emergency management, all of that. Uh, you and I have been together a few times on this podcast to talk about racial inequity. We've talked to other guests about it. Uh, but you're back now because I think you've reached a breaking point, right? I think you've like had enough with the IAEM. So that's the International Association of uh, Emergency Managers in the United States. Uh, Talk a little bit about what's been happening with them for the past several months that has caused you to walk away from that. Certainly, uh, certainly, Mark. uh, And I'll give you the very shortest version I possibly can because it really is a very long and complex story. I've been a member of IAEM for about 15 years. uh, part of their certified emergency manager program, which is a highly, highly touted uh, um, certification process that the organization promotes uh, extensively. I belong to various committees and caucuses. At one point in the organization, I was the chair of the Children in Disaster Caucus. Um, and most recently uh, was a member, just a member of the uh, um Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee uh, of IAEM, which was supposedly an ad hoc committee that worked on issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion, both within and external to the organization to further those um, to further those goals uh, that the organization had with regard to ensuring fairness and equity within uh, 
the field of emergency management in general and specifically within IAEM. So that's what I want to ask you. So I'm going to hit pause on on what you're the story you're going to tell us, but I want to just add some context here. So so this committee that you're on for diversity, is it to promote diversity within the profession or is it to make sure that people in communities of color are well represented in emergency management tactics? Which would you say of those two things that that committee's primary objective, you know, was focused on? Well, it's both, because when you talk, uh, Mark, about uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion, about DEI or, uh, you know, within the context of emergency management, you're talking about really uh, what the outcomes are for people Mm -hmm. in marginalized communities, for people of color, for people below poverty, for people with uh, disabilities. You're talking about the whole gamut and range of underserved and marginalized populations that often get overlooked and uh, and not well served, both before, during, and after disasters. Yeah. So as a as a organization that is supposedly um, um, steeped in in the ideals of being effective in emergency management. All organizations that are doing EEM should be focusing on these these underserved and marginalized populations because those are frankly the people that that uh, they have to go rescue when uh, disasters happen because they're unprepared. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are the people who have the the greatest uh, um, chance of of not surviving a disaster or a catastrophe, and, and those are the people who are costing the most money in terms of response and recovery. So we all, as an emergency management community, the larger community of emergency management, should be doing issue, uh, should be uh, doing uh, or making efforts to ensure that these uh, that diversity, equity, and inclusion exists among these these populations. All right. So I that interrupted is what, you. Yeah. So yeah. Go back to uh, back to your no, story. Sorry. <laughs> no. So that is what I am. Uh, and every other organization should be doing. Yeah. Um, so um, as one of the standing committees of IEM, I was asked a couple of years ago by the then uh, chair of the IEM D- diversity committee to come on board to help further some of the efforts that they were making towards diversity, both within and outside the IEM organization. And when I say that, I mean, it was not just focused on, okay, how do we get you know, emergency management up to speed and and how do we get emergency management focusing on these different things? But how do we get IEM as an organization to be more diverse? Sure. How, how do we get, how do we make sure that there is representation of the populations of, of minorities, of LGBTQ, of uh, uh, other marginalized groups within the, the auspices of this international organization for emergency management? And uh, as soon as we started to focus on that inward piece, that's when the trouble started. As long as we were focused on the outward, hey, let's uh, get involved with HBCUs and let's let's talk to everybody in the world about how we need diversity. But let's not look at, you know, uh, uh, the barber's kids never have a haircut. Let's not look internally at the organization and how they handle diversity. And frankly, if you ask anybody who's been around IEM for a long time, uh, the reputation it has among emergency management folk is that it is a kind of a boutique country club atmosphere that is very white male dominated and and that there isn't a lot of uh, 
effort to include or embrace other other groups of people. So you, you talked about um, it, it's easy to project out what other people should be doing, but now that, okay, we need to look at diversity without, within our own organization, that's where the trouble started. Specifically, what were you running into? What kind of obstacles were you facing? Well, uh, the, the nexus of this entire controversy that's involving IEM and diversity uh, started when the new incoming president, the incoming president of this past year, 2022, in November at the uh, organization's conference, decided that uh, she wanted to move into a what she said was a different direction in terms of uh, the diversity committee. Now, for background, what that meant was two things. One, she had the right as the president to uh, appoint or replace members of standing committees and caucuses. She has an absolute right to do that. Nobody ever disputed that, that, that the president did not have the authority to do that. However, there is a process by which that happens, and uh, it did not happen in this case. Um, first of all, the new direction was never clear. The standing committee, which included a chair and two co-chairs, uh, was never consulted, which was part of the process, uh, was never involved in the selection process or even in the discussion of leadership and who would replace the leadership. And then secondly, uh, in violation and direct violation of their administrative procedures for reselecting or replacing uh, chairs and co-chairs, um, there is a section in the bylaws that clearly states that the uh, person who heads the uh, committee, the caucus or committee chair person uh, and advisor to the board on DEI must be selected from the existing membership of the DEI committee. Mm -hmm. That is, they could have, so she could have selected Vince Davis or any number of 30 other people that were eligible because they've been, we've been participants in the committee, or she could have selected the existing co-chairs either of the existing co-chairs who were also obviously part of the committee. But what she could not do was to go outside of the committee and get a person who had A, no involvement, B, had never served on the committee at all, and replace the chair of the committee with that person. And that's exactly what happened. So in your opinion, these administrative irregularities where the procedure wasn't followed, was there a, a, a point to that? Or was there a purpose for are doing it that way? Was it to further an agenda? Because well, having a right to do something and being right are, aren't anywhere near the, the you know the same thing. Well, those are the questions that were raised. And one, the first question that was raised when this happened was, uh, what what do you mean when you say you wanted to move in a different direction? You've never mm -hmm. even sat in on a on a caucus uh, or an, on a committee meeting, so you have no idea what the committee is or is not doing. Uh, let me back up a step if I can and just say that the whole thing started when the previous year the committee began looking at the bylaws and there's a section in the bylaws that that stated that if you are not a U.S. citizen, you cannot serve on a committee at IEM, <laughs> at IEM USA. So what does that do? That discriminates against, for example, students, people who are here on a student visa. Right. I I'm here uh, on a student visa. I'm, I'm studying at the university. I'm an active member of IEM uh, Europe or IEM Canada, uh, but I'm not a U.S. citizen. So, so you mean to tell me that I can't serve as a voting member 
of IEM unless I'm a U.S. citizen. So that was one of the discriminatory practices and policies that were sort of baked into IEM that nobody ever really paid a lot of attention to. Mm -hmm. uh, but that on its face was completely discriminatory. Other things that we were uh, about to look into were, for example, their certified emergency manager program, which um, is, is supposedly a, a process selection process by a commission of people appointed to determine whether the body of your work in emergency management in terms of training, education, et cetera, is worthy of getting a certification from IEM. Well, that, that sounds great, except the problem is one of the tenets of that program is that the person who is selected or, or is eligible for uh, certification as a CEM, a certified emergency manager, must have a college degree, a four-year college degree. Really? And that sounds like a reasonable request, except that I, it doesn't I, matter I what your college with that. is. I disagree that it sounds like a reasonable <laughs> request, but go ahead. Well, it would be reasonable if it were two things, if it were done strictly to uh, ensure the quote-unquote purity of the certification process. That is, folks might be required to have a degree in emergency management. Sure. But it's not. You could have a degree in anthropology and you would still be eligible for a CEM. Well, who does that discriminate against? Well, for one, tribes. And this is where uh, my good friend and colleague Linda Zambrano uh, and I you know, uh, collaborated because uh, the... Um, you know, the chances of a, a, a tribal member um, getting, you know, a Native Native American, an indigenous tribal member in the U.S., getting a college degree are almost, are infinitesimally low. Sure. Uh, there just isn't. There isn't a path. There's a lot of factors that go against it. But does that disqualify that person from being qualified to do emergency management uh, in a tribal setting? Absolutely not. There are people that are doing it every day, all day. Uh, there are tribal emergency managers that manage disasters in their tribes, in their uh, in their uh, nations uh, all the time uh, that don't have college degrees. Uh, but so that was another one of those really archaic, uh, arbitrary requirements that was sort of baked into the, the culture of IAEM. Uh, in other words, we're not trying to open the tent. We're trying to close the tent. Uh, so... Linda Zambrano, who heads the National Tribal Emergency Management Council and who, who represents 200 or so of the over 200, almost 300 of the 574 federally recognized tribes, mostly in Pacific Northwest, Alaska, et cetera, uh, got together and we came up with and developed, along with some other Native interests, a tribal certification program sure. for tribal emergency managers. Presented it to IEM. Of course, it went nowhere. They had no interest in discussing it and said, no, just CEM program is what it is. And that's too bad if they don't qualify. So again, this is not a necessarily a diversity issue as much as it is a culture issue. And the culture at IEM has long been very exclusive. Uh, there's a lot of, a lot of cronyism, a lot of politics. Uh, there are a lot of really highly respected emergency managers uh, in this profession. And I can call their names, but I won't but they know who they are and, and I know who they are who have said publicly and openly, they have no use for IEM because of these kinds of things that I'm talking about. Sure. So what was tried to be turned into, for example, a diversity problem or issue 
is really a culture issue at IEM. It is a very bad and very toxic culture. It is not conducive to, for example, activities that are going to promote new ideas. Hence, why you have organizations like my good friend and colleague, Randy Hunter, who started Aspiring Emergency Managers Online. That's right. Uh, my good friend and colleague, uh, Chauncey Willis and, and Curtis Brown, who started the Institute for Diversity and Inclusion. Yep. And people like Charles Sharp, who years ago, after getting nowhere with IEM, started the Black Emergency Managers Association. And what's really interesting to me is that here's a situation where an organization in emergency management was trying to do something uh, related to DEI, but did it so poorly that it completely imploded. Well, you could you could say that. Uh, this look, this is nothing new. The the uh, the, the DEI committee has existed for years. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a you know there's a timeline of discrimination <laughs> that that some of us put together uh, that is a pattern at, at at IEM and there are other issues that have nothing to do with discrimination racial or otherwise there's problems with regard to dealing with people with disabilities uh, there's problems that have cropped up with regard to even some ethics questions regarding the CEM commission recently a CEM commissioner female CEM commissioner resigned uh, because of uh, a lot of her allegations against the organization. So there's a myriad of problems at IEM. And the sum totality of that is this, uh, Mark. I'm tired of fighting. Uh, you know, I, I, I was one of those people who said, hey, let's just keep, continue to work together. Yeah, we know there's problems. Don't give up. Just just keep working together and, and start. we'll start to make some headway. Everything's not going to change all at once. So this is not something that this is new and just came down the pike. This is 15 years of my life that I've spent trying to help make this organization better. And um, and the reality of it is, is that it has no desire to change anything that it's doing. And, and frankly, I don't have time for it. Uh, you know, I've got a lot of things going on both inside and outside of emergency management, emergency preparedness. I've got great demands on my, my, my personal and professional time. And... Um, you know, this last situation with IEM is just more than I can stand. And the reality is that I'm not alone in this. There are literally dozens of emergency managers. I talk to them every single day. They email me. They inbox me. We talk on the phone. They ask me questions. I give them answers. And and the answer is always, Vince, what do you think about this? What's really happening here? And and what I tell them is what's really happening here is you have a, a culture problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, the culture of IEM needs to change. And that means the leadership needs to change and the process needs to change. So there's a there's a myriad of problems. DEI chair was unceremoniously removed. We made some demands. We, we had some back channel negotiations. And when it was clear that they were not negotiating in good faith, we went public and we went on LinkedIn. Right. And we talked about it publicly and they were highly upset and offended by that not because they thought they were right but because they did not want their dirty laundry aired in public so let's leverage this uh, example that you've brought to us today and think about any other organization they're sitting here and and they realize they're about to launch uh, a DEI initiative you cannot just do window dressing on this, you have got to fix any internal cultural issues first, right? Yes. And that's the real work of DEI that people don't understand. You know, DEI became the flavor of the month after the George Floyd murders. 
but mm -hmm. but you know d diversity equity and inclusion issues have have long been uh, a struggle in a lot of organizations public and private and and so everybody jumped on the DEI bandwagon and yeah we're going to do this now you see recently a lot of corporations are sort of dialing back claims that they made that they were really going to do some 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 real uh, inroads on ensuring diversity and and a lot of you know a lot of pressure is being put on organizations to to scale back on some of those efforts uh so you know there's a whole thing going on in the backdrop of that and then you have uh an organization that that frankly you know has underperformed if you will in its entire history with regard to diversity and and what's so disappointing about that is it's an organization that frankly should know better and that finds itself in a position of air quotes leadership on this topic and that's why their failure is so repulsive. And this has to go way beyond, and I'm not going to use the same term you used, but way beyond hiring a person or two of color and having them sit in a prominent position. So, Well, and that's exactly what happened here. The, the DEI chair was replaced with a person of color, <laughs> and they thought somehow that's going to make this all okay. Just because you're a person of color does not qualify you as a DEI expert. I am not a DEI expert. I am a DEI practitioner. I have no training, formal or background in diversity, equity, and inclusion, and I don't claim to. Right. I, and I, I, have a, I have a hell of a lot of life experience <laughs> in dealing with this stuff, and I'm an yeah. advocate for change. But when we say qualified, you know, just because a person is black or brown or Latino doesn't necessarily qualify them to even be a part of speaking on these issues. So there's a lot of things going on here, but the backdrop of it is for me personally, and look, uh, Mark, I would never tell any other individual what they should do professionally. I, I would never suggest to anybody that, that they should do whatever. They, people should do whatever their heart tells them to do, whatever their conscience tells them to do regarding any of this. Uh, but if I'm asked, and I have been asked many mm -hmm. times, what, what, what do I think about it? And, and why am I doing what I'm doing? That's what I'm here to say. I have given my last drop of free labor, energy, and effort to the International Association of Emergency Managers. I feel it's a failed organization. I feel that it has summarily undone any semblance of good that it did for the emergency management community. And I want to I want to jump off on that because uh, we don't have much time left. You shared some statistics, and I'm going to use this to leverage into my question. You shared some statistics, you said, where 51% of Black Americans expect racism to worsen within their lifetime, so more than half, and 70%, 7 out of 10, said it's more dangerous to be a Black teen now than when they were younger. And on top of that, last week, at the time of this recording, let's be honest, the Supreme Court had a rough week. So they made a landmark decision last week saying that it's unlawful for colleges to take race into consideration as a specific factor in admissions. Listen, I, I'm going to get to my question, I promise. The majority opinion said that, in other words, the student must be treated based on his or her experiences as an individual, not on the basis of race. And the problem that I have with that statement is that the ruling imposes white privilege. In other words, the ruling forgets that people of color are starting from a point of disadvantage. It's a hundred yard dash 
where the privileged folks, the white folks, are running 60 yards exactly. and everybody else is running 100 and they're wondering why the black folks aren't winning the race. So talk about that. I didn't mean to steal all your thunder on that. but No, absolutely. Talk about that. And those statistics, by the way, that I reported are from the U.S. Census Bureau. They're not Vince Davis statistics. Uh, but um, but but to be sure, you know, the Supreme Court's uh, rulings on, on, on all of these things are, are very far to the extreme right, as far as I'm concerned. And, and look, uh, whatever your politics are, there's a matter of, of basic fairness. I, I just spoke uh, recently at a, uh, a conference in South Dakota about diversity and inclusion. And, and one of the ways I approached this conference, because I'm speaking to an audience of all white, uh, many male people who some of which had never probably even seen a, you know, actual black person in person. I was asked to come there to talk about diversity. And, and my approach was this, I didn't go into headlong into these issues that you and I went headlong into today. Mm-hmm. I talked about the issue of opening doors and what black people in this country and brown people and indigenous people have faced uh, all along is this idea that the doors you go to open to get to your opportunity are often closed and they're locked. Mm-hmm. And there's people on the other side that are pushing to make sure that you can't bust them open in any kind of way. Yeah. And then, and then there are, are revolving doors and revolving doors are sort of different because revolving doors require perfect timing. Otherwise you don't get in. And once you get in, you got to have perfect timing to get out. Otherwise yeah. you wind up going around in a circle. Yeah. So a lot of black Americans and, and a lot of uh, minorities have been caught in this circle, this vicious circle of, well, if you just make it into this window or that window, you'll have the opportunity. If you just make it into the window. Look, I've got two kids that have Ivy League degrees, one Yale and one Brown. Okay. That requires luck and timing. What we're trying to create is a set of open doors. And those doors are not just open, but they're wide open. And they're wide open because they need to be wide enough for all of us to get through at the same time, whether we're white, black, brown, or otherwise, for all of us to be able to walk side by side equally at the same time, at the same pace, to get through to what's on the other side. And if we see life as a series of opening doors, then we know where the problems lie. The problems lie in putting people in places like affirmative action, which again requires this revolving door sort of scenario where, yeah, if you get in at the right time, you know, Clarence Thomas was a beneficiary of affirmative action. Uh, Justice Brown was a, a uh, admitted beneficiary of, of affirmative action. So to say that it, 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 it doesn't matter and that you have to go on your own merit is basically saying we want to move white, white on top to the top. Right. And, and, and we want to continue to keep that door closed as closed as tightly as possible. So that maybe a few exceptions might sneak through, but as a rule, it's not going to happen for most people. (laughs) So that's where we are. It's it's very sad, but you know what? That's the world we live in. We've had this conversation before, Mark. I told you after the Obama election in 2008, a lot of people thought we lived in a post-racial or we were heading to a post-racial America. And I was not one of those. I said, wait for the backlash. And we're living in the days of the backlash. Yeah, no, you're right. Hey, look, I'm going to get you out of here on this and on a lighter note. If you had your choice of any song 
that would be played when you walked into a room? Let's say, all right, you're speaking at that conference and they announce your name and you got this song playing while you're walking to the podium. What song would it be? Well, uh, there's an old Curtis Mayfield song. Um, oh, I'm liking this. I like where Curtis this Mayfield of the Impressions. Uh, and, and it's called Move On Up. And it nice. was out when I was in college. And uh, it is it is my theme song of, of life. It's my favorite song. It's one of my favorite songs. Because the lyrics of it say, hush my child and don't you cry. Because folks might understand you by and by. But move move on up to your destination even though you may find complications. Wow. Uh, it, it encourages me to keep one foot in front of the other, uh, regardless of these enormous obstacles that we face in this country, uh, and and to, to, to remain hopeful uh, that that all you have to do is, is, is keep pushing forward and that there's going to be some light at the end. So that's that, that would be my theme song, uh, without question. Man, you gave me goosebumps. I appreciate you, my brother. Thank you so much for being here, man. You're welcome anytime. Mark, thank you, my friend, and uh, take care. We'll talk soon. I want to thank Vince Davis for being my guest this week and for speaking the truth, for inspiring us all, and frankly, for giving me goosebumps when it came to his song choice. The Resilient Journey podcast is a Resilience Think Tank production, and we have another great guest lined up next week. So join us, won't you, as we continue our resilient journey.